Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book. All right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella, Episode 5, The Call of the Wild, by Jack London. Well, sir, dogs, dogs. Uh, bring Flip and Frowsy. Say, Joe, why don't you show the honorable Mr. Smith this beautiful animal? I don't think so. He's too savage. Is that so? Well, just let him out. Liable to get tough, Mr. Smith. Let him out, I said. What's his name? We call him Buck. I don't like to take the responsibility, Mr. Smith. That's why you'll never amount to much. What are you asking for? It? Uh, 250 bucks. So, let him out. belongs to me. I bought him, Smith. And I don't allow my dogs to be shot. That is, of course, unless I shoot them myself. That's all right. I'll give you twice what you paid for him. He's not for sale. Just as you say, my good man. Just as you say. Hello and welcome back to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and in each episode we are going to take a look at one work of literature, usually one that's considered a classic, discuss it, dissect it, analyze it, and determine if it's worth its place in the canon. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Tom Panneries, and with me is my cohort along for this particular journey. Stella, how are you tonight? I'm not talking to you. Oh, jeez, here we go. 
And we need a third party on here so I can say, please tell Tom that uh, I have some problems with this book. Hold on, I'm going to see if Shag's online. <laughs> yes! Yes, he understands me. Yeah, I'm sure he does. <laughs> no, Shag is not available. Let's go out to the list. Magnus is not... Spataro, Bailey's not, not available. <laughs> um, my wife is not available. Well, you don't know. Dustin is apparently available at all times. Yeah, Leyland, I Leyland, I think it's uh, in the middle of the night over there. Um, Donovan probably not wants no part of this. Uh, I can call the Echo Sound Testing Service, and the Skype lady can chime in, but I, I don't think that she's going to really say anything except for thank you for using Skype. Goodbye. So, yeah. I guess I'm going solo with this. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, I am stuck with you, aren't I? Yeah. Isn't there a movie stuck on you, and it's about, like, brothers that were um siamese twins yeah it's a fairly brothers movie i think i think it's like matt damon and greg, <laughs> greg kinnear yeah, yeah. Never saw imagine it, if but... that were us yeah no <laughs> <laughs> i wonder who would last the longest oh man <laughs> i am upset with you suicide. but i i am always happy to to speak with you okay uh so um and, and I, I'm going to assume that you're upset with me because of the, stu- the subject matter for tonight. Absolutely. <laughs> and not... Yeah, yeah, and not, like, real-life reasons, yeah. Because <laughs> you rarely, you and I rarely actually, ha- <laughs> despite what you may see between us on Twitter, listeners, both of you, um, <laughs> we actually get along in, in real life. Um no, we're, we're talking about The Call of the Wild, which is um, a novel that Jack London wrote uh, and published in 1903, and we're going to do, do our usual bit about it. I've got some history on, on London, I've got some uh, historical context about it, I've got a plot summary, and we are going to discuss the novel itself. But before we do that, um, I got the feeling, based on your random angry texts to they me. were not random okay your angry texts to me at random times mm-hmm. that that you actually had never read this book before so i'll, I'll ask you like we, we always go through our histories with these mm-hmm. books um what is your history with the book yeah so i thought that i had like it seemed familiar well obviously i knew the title jack london and i was like dogs and so i had this vision of what what dogs yes dogs um i had this vision of what it was and as i started reading i realized that my vision was very very wrong and so i'm not sure like i still feel like i've had some sort of relationship with this book because it did seem familiar, but I can't, I, I, I feel like maybe I had read it way back when, like grade school, but now it's like coming to the surface and it must not have had as much of an impact because things I read in grade school, I certainly did not read to, um, 
<laughs> in, in the manner that we read now or, you know, for this show yeah. or just for fun that I read normally mm-hmm. because I was like told it was kind of like a timeout situation. But, you know, I had to read like at least 30 to 60 minutes each day. That was like my, one of my things uh, that my parents made me do, at least my mom. So I think it could have been one of those things. I looked up Wishbone because I wondered if maybe it was one of the plots for a Wishbone mm-hmm. um uh, episode because I, I loved that show, but it was not. So I ha- I feel like I have some history with it, but I'm afraid I don't know what it is. So we can just say that at some point in time I knew of this book and I may have read it, but I didn't really read it until we had to do this episode, <laughs> which is like the weirdest explanation <clears throat> ever. No, that's okay because there are there are there. I think there's I get that way with movies. Mm-hmm. Where I'm like, I'm, I'm pretty sure I saw a certain movie, or I've seen the whole movie, and I haven't seen the whole movie. I've seen bits and pieces of it. Um, and I wonder, I was wondering, um, there's a. This is not the only novel that Jack London wrote about a dog. Mm-hmm. Uh, White Fang is the other really famous right. one, and that was made into a movie in with the '90s with Ethan, Ethan Hawke. Hawk. Yep. I mean, like the early '90s, I want to say, and and so um, this was made into a movie with Charlton Heston back in the mm. '70s, I think. Um, I did. Re- I have read this before. I've read it once. I read it in the seventh grade, um, and we watched the Charlton Heston movie. I believe I'm trying to remember Ooh. Mr. Engel's seventh grade English class and. Um, it was the edition that I had. It was. It was a double. You know how like with with small books like this, sometimes publishers will do kind of a double feature, where like you'll have, um, where like you know you'll actually have two novels in one book because there's just they're just so short. Mm-hmm. Um, Steinbeck's get that way sometimes. Um. With this, this with this one, it was um, it was a double feature with uh, with White Fang. So that's where yeah. I remember White Fang. I never read White Fang, and I remember I think it was Bantam. I just remember Helvetica was the font that they used in the color. It was a sans serif font <laughs> on the cover of the book, and I can picture it in my head because I had similar uh, similar uh, books from this from similar publishers. So um, I could probably look it up. Uh, at some point. Anyway, th- nobody really gives a crap about the font that was used on the cover of my edition of the Call of the Wild in the seventh grade back in 1990. So, uh, but no, I had, and I had not read, re- I had not read this since. So it's been about 27 years since I read this book. So I'm kind of coming in new. I knew that there was the book, there was Buck. I knew that his, he had been kind of, living the good life and then was thrown into this Alaskan dog sled thing. And well, the call of the wild is, is kind of a, not a very um, subtle title when you're dealing with a book about a dog. So, but um, what I can do know what I'm going to do now is just talk a little bit about the context of the book and uh, the actual history of the author uh, who is Jack London, who is one of those, you know, um, I don't think he's, he's he's sort of the literary luminary that like Shake not Shakespeare um, Hemingway or Steinbeck would have been, but he's definitely one of the more popular authors of the early 20th century, and um, the the Call of the Wild itself takes place during the Klondike Gold Rush 
of the late 1890s, and it's based on the and based on the timeline of the Gold Rush. It probably begins the novel itself probably begins in 1897, because that's the years when prospectors uh, from both San Francisco and Seattle had heard about gold being discovered in the Yukon wilderness and began to rush off in droves. And by the way, I'm getting all of this information from Wikipedia. Uh, this period from 1897 to 1898 was generally referred to as the Stampede, and the gold rush itself would begin to decline, at least in the Yukon around 1899, when more gold was discovered up in Nome, Alaska. 1903 is generally considered the end of the gold rush era in the Yukon and the Klondike, and since then the history of the gold rush has been a huge tourist attraction for that area. Jack London himself, who was born in 1876, published The Call of the Wild in 1903, which means he was not even 30 when he wrote this book. He actually did participate in the gold rush in 1897, and he was successful, although he contracted scurvy at one point, and he would wind up losing four teeth and having scars as a result of it. His experience was the inspiration for The Call of the Wild, White Fang, and other stories, such as his short story, to build a fire, which I have actually seen on Virginia standards of learning, standardized tests in reading at some point or another. I'm not kidding. <laughs> Interestingly enough, Buck's own journey, which is the plot for this book, mirrors Jack London's life because he did actually leave Oakland for the Klondike, although he eventually did return and decide to become a writer. He would marry Betsy Mattern in 1900. They had two children. They divorced in 1904. His second marriage was to Charmaine Kitteridge in 1905, and he would go on to a career as a war correspondent around that time, starting with the Russo-Japanese War in 1904. Uh, London died in 1916 as a result of a number of issues, including his body's breaking down because of his shoddy health over the years, as well as some substance abuse issues that he had, including alcoholism and continued use of morphine. You had mentioned in our conversation of just kind of generally setting things up about how he wasn't exactly the best to his children. And I, I tried to find information about yeah. this. And what I found was that uh, what I really could only find it, and, and I will admit, I, I will I will admit that I, I eventually got swamped with other stuff and really couldn't dig, dig much deeper. Uh, the, the general feeling I got from what I looked from what I looked at was that he kind of doted on one of his children and kind of ignored the other one. So he kind of mm -hmm. played favorites, but I didn't see anything about a, use or anything like that but i'm not yeah. trying to say that you're wrong i just like i said no I was... and i mean that was even hearsay on my part mm -hmm. um and and i wonder if the person from whom i heard that may have gotten it um mixed up with somebody else because is it true he just had three daughters and uh, yeah. um the person told me that uh it was a son like a abusive relationship with with his son so it must have been a different author <laughs> so yeah. i may have push of this uh this source again and okay. figure out what it is yeah but uh, i i couldn't find that either because i also was looking <clears throat> okay so i'm gonna get into the book and then uh stella and i have our usual q a with one another and our discussion and uh we're gonna the be getting it's gonna be a knockdown drag out oh yeah probably will be based on uh <laughs> some of the comments we had before we got on the call so <laughs> all right so the 
the, the call of the wild actually begins in Oakland, California. And as the news of the gold rush in the Klondike region of the Yukon begins to reach Northern California, a dog named Buck, who is half St. Bernard and half sheepdog, and therefore very strong, is kidnapped from his relatively easy life on the estate of Judge Miller by one of his gardeners, who sells him off so that he can pay for his own gambling debts. Taken away from the estate, Buck is put in a crate and shipped up to Canada, during which he is starved and abused and eventually conditioned to obey what he refers to as the rule of the club. After arriving in Canada, Buck is sold to two Frenchmen, Francois and Perrault, who train him how to be a sled dog. He's not accustomed to the conditions of the Yukon, after all his life in Oakland was very comfortable. So Buck struggles at first to adapt to the cold and the constant work, as well as having his food rationed rather than being able to eat whatever he wants and whenever he wants. He, leans, he learns through watching the other dogs, and we see where the title of the book comes from as he begins to rely more on his primitive instincts, which include learning how to scavenge for food and fighting with other dogs in the pack for supremacy. One particular fight is with Spitz, who at the time is the alpha dog of the pack, when Buck is purchased by Francois and Perrault. At this point, having seen a female dog named Curly get torn apart by a pack of huskies, Buck has already made up his mind not to be a victim, and disguised to challenge Spitz for superiority. They do sp fight to the death, and while Buck doesn't specifically kill Spitz, he does wound him and humiliate him badly enough to assert his dominance, and the pack kills Spitz, so Buck is then the leader of the pack. Buck's next owner is a man who is referred to as a Scottish half-breed and who runs a mail service, which is a long and arduous assignment for all involved. During this time, Buck's watches, Buck watches as Dave, one of the other dogs, gets sick and has to be shot. At, after his time with the mail service, Buck is sold to a trio of Americans named Hal, Charles, and Mercedes. And what's, the, what's different between them and the other owners is that they are stampeders. That basically means that these are the people who rushed up north to get rich, but they had little experience or ability when it came to surviving in the harsh winter or, well, actually navigating the Yukon Territory. Their experience proves detrimental to both humans and dogs as they ignore their warnings about danger, don't steer the sled properly, and treat the dogs cruelly. Buck himself is first overfed and then starved, and winds up being one of only five dogs remaining alive from the original 14 dogs in the pack when they arrive at the camp of John Thornton who's an experienced outdoorsman. Thornton warns Hal, Charles, and Mercedes that they should not try to cross a frozen river because the th spring thaw is coming and the ice is unstable. They ignore him and decide to forge on, but Buck refuses to move. As a result, Hal beats Buck, and when Thornton sees this, he attacks Hal and sets Buck free. Not wanting to lose the inevitable confrontation they'll have with Thornton over Buck, Hal, Charles, and Mercedes leave without him, and they wind up dying in the river after the ice gives way, and they fall in. Buck eventually grows very fond of Thornton because he nurses him back to health and treats him well. Thornton takes Buck with him on a several expeditions, and Buck returns the favor by winning money for him when he pulls a large sled out of a block of ice on a bet, as well as saving his life when Thornton falls into a river. At one point, a very rich man offers to buy Buck, but Thornton refuses to sell him. As he continues his adventure with Thornton, Buck spends his free time going off on adventures of his own, even coming across a member of a pack of local wolves, and he himself becomes a better hunter and a tracker. One night after Buck comes back from one of his long trips, he discovers that Thornton and the others in his camp are dead, having been killed by a tribe of Indians, the Yehats. Buck takes his vengeance out on the Yehats and kills them, 
but then is attacked by a pack of wolves. After fighting them off, he discovers that one of the wolves is the same wolf he had met earlier. He then becomes one of the pack, having fairly heard, yes, the call of the wild, and returns each year as what is referred to as the ghost dog of the Northland legend to mourn at the side of Thornton's death. So that is a pretty brief synopsis of the book. It's not a very long book. Um, it's, I think, 120, 130 pages. And like I said, because of its length, often gets packaged in a in a twofer with, with another book or another, uh, another story. Uh, the, the edition that I had that I grabbed out of my English department's uh, closet had a short story that he wrote called Batard that was... He wrote before the Call of the Wild, and from what I understand, was almost like the like the precursor to this, or something where like you could tell he was playing with elements that would eventually go into the Call of the Wild. I didn't read it, and then the back of it has a bunch of historical context notes on uh, the Klondike Gold Rush, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Uh, and also has pic- illustrations that went along with some of its original publication because this was published not only in novel form but serially in what we would probably refer to as like pulp magazines uh from back in that era so and, and i think it has that feel at times because it, it does have an episodic feel at times even though there's a definite through line of continuity but i am going to be quiet for now and just sit back and brace myself for the onslaught that is about to come my way because i am going to ask stella a question She's been waiting to answer since we got on Skype. <laughs> Did you like this book? Tom, Tom, Tom. See, the thing behind the scenes, you know, is that, in fact, we are good friends. Um, I'd say, actually, like, you've progressed to being my main texting friend that I'll, you know, I'll text you a lot. And so as I was progressing through this book, um, I feel like I was sending more and more violent texts and to the point where like they sort of uh, reached this apex where then I decided I wasn't going to talk to you ever again until we recorded, mm-hmm. uh, which, of course, we see how <laughs> that turned out. <laughs> um, but I, I got pretty upset at some certain moments. Um, one of them you neglected, perhaps conveniently in your little um, synopsis there. I, I didn't uh, not if I neglect any I'm not no for for real if I neglect any detail in a synopsis it's because I just forgot to put it in. Yeah, <laughs> I'm okay. I'm not that no that is not me that is that is it, it's it's me being forgetful or lazy, not me being um you know vindictive. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, so people who don't know me personally, uh, and I don't even think I, I really talk about this on my own, you know, on my own show, Backroll Oracle, because really, why would it come up? But I absolutely adore moose. Like, you have no idea how much I love them. Uh, and this was ever since I was really, really small. I don't even know how it happened. My parents don't know how it happened. Like, people would find out, and they're like, wow, your child is like, special because everyone if you ask them they'll be like dolphin dog cat but you know i'll say moose they're my favorite animals and so then you know there's a massacre of moose and basically i in a froth i a froth frothy anger i texted tom and it's like what are you doing to me um and then yeah okay so let me just back up 
<laughs> by saying, sure. I don't know okay. if I liked it or not. Like, it's it's a little hard because I've actually been thinking about this question a lot because I know that this is the first question besides the history that we always get into. And I think yeah. it's a complicated question to a certain extent. Um, I think, you know, first of off, I, I enjoyed it. I was able to read it. Uh, because there are, you know, there are some books that are like a struggle to get through. But it was like, you know, it was easy to pick up. Um, it wasn't necessarily the easiest thing to get through because I think there were some like pretty traumatic things. And I liked being in the mind and emotions of a dog. Like, I think that's pretty cool. Um, there's another book I like that's in the perspective of a dog called uh, Racing in the Rain, which I, which is a really fun book. So I enjoyed that. But, like, some really hard and emotional things happened, which I was not expecting at all, which is why, like I said at the beginning, I came in, like, having an idea perhaps a romantic idea of what this was and it was like completely wrong but as you know as some of these dogs died um even the ones that you know were you were more like sympathetic to um than others i was like texting tom and be like this person you know this dog just died and then the moose which was just insane because buck was like terrorizing it and then d above all you have john thornton get killed yeah. which is like the last person that you want to die and uh you before we started recording i was talking to tom about silver linings playbook um which if anyone has seen that there's a scene where bradley cooper is finishing up a book he's staying at his parents house <coughs> For whatever reason. And it's an Ernest Hemingway. I looked up which one it was. A Farewell to Arms. And he, like, finishes it. And he, like, shouts WTF and throws the book through a glass window out onto the street. And then runs up to his parents' room and starts, like, shouting at it. And basically, like, when John Thornton died, I wanted to throw the book across the room. And also, like, run over to where Tom teaches and strangle him. Um, <laughs> so all that to say, it's a complicated, it's a complicated thing. I think overall. I liked it, but it was actually really hard. It, it stuck with me um, when when I was serious about it. I told Tom how like emotionally upset I was like at the end of all of it. Uh, it it's a hard read, and I think we'll talk about like what's our audience, and you know, could this audience take it? Uh, but overall, you know, it it was uh, an enjoyable book. It's just like it was emotionally straining for me, perhaps because you know I, I love animals, and it's hard to see that happen to them. Even though this, I guess this is like nature, so that stuff happens. Yeah, I, I, I found I find the book engaging. Mm -hmm. Um, and and we're gonna get into this as well because I, I have a question about the audience for this book, and I just wonder if I'm actually that audience anymore, or if I ever really was. Um, I don't. I, I, yeah, like. I kind of, I kind of am on the fence with that now. I wasn't as um, wildly <laughs> upset. Um, it, <sighs> it's. I had to remind myself a few times, however, of how old the book is, because there were points where, like, you know, I was because there were points of the whole call of the wild aspect of the book, where I was like, "Wow, you're laying this on really, really thick." But then I'm like, "No, wait, wait, wait." It's of its time. It's very much, you know, kind of one of the archetypes for a storyline like this. Mm -hmm. um, and I have to remind myself of that because, you know, saying, oh, this is, you know, cliche and it's been played and stuff is like calling Cyrano de Bergerac cliche. You know, like, you know, 
the plots this plot has been done or stuff like that is this has been done you know you know who you are remembering what you came from and all that um has been done in a very aspects of popular culture but um you know look all the wild predates a lot of that stuff yeah i didn't i didn't hate it i don't think it's one i'd seek out i don't know i don't think london's a writer that i would seek out um and try to read like i don't think i'm gonna go pick up white fang mm-hmm. if my son came home with this i'd be like yeah go ahead and give it a shot but i i like i said it's not you know, and we'll we'll get into the we'll get into the teachability of it and all that later. But it was, I was I was kind of on the fence where I was like, you know, I don't I don't hate it, I don't not like it, and I definitely didn't find it a chore to get through. It was engaging enough for me to get through, but it was it's not up there with the books that I like really really adore. You know. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, so let's get into our discussion here because we did bring up a couple. You, you brought up a couple of points that we're definitely going to talk about. And one of the questions that we've got is, uh, and I think you wrote you wrote this out, but I'll, I'll, I'll read read it. London's biographer refers to this story as more of a myth than a conventional novel, saying that Buck undergoes a hero's journey, much like other mythological characters. How much do you agree with this? Um, this was not my question. This wasn't. No, Maybe but that's was okay. My question. I, it, <laughs> Unless you know how long someone else that's like stepping onto our drive? <laughs> no, uh, maybe I maybe I wrote it. I don't. I well, maybe, it wasn't me. I, I know which ones. <laughs> I, I think I wrote it when I was looking through a piece. I wrote a lot of these questions weeks ago, so <laughs> trying to remember. Yeah, so, you right, did. so it was my question. It was, and my in question. the end, it doesn't matter because there are questions. I yeah, guess, there are but... questions. Um, I guess I'll answer that. Uh, I can. I, I was I was jotting these answers down today at lunch. Uh, I can see this as a myth because he's calling. I feel that London is with the call, the whole idea of the call of the wild, and I, I know I'm going to be dropping the title a lot in my discussion of this aspect of it. But like again, the title's not subtle. Um, he is calling upon some sort of like spirituality, in a sense. I'm not saying religion, but there's some sort of uh, feeling of belonging and spiritual belonging of, of, of getting back to something that was once part of you. Uh, like, you know, I guess it's not a deity or a god or something. It's this instinct that he's lost, this, that, this, this force-like sort of thing that he has, he has discovered, rediscovered about himself. And you know, I I'm this is going to make me a bad science fiction mytholo- mythology or whatever fan, but I've actually never read Joseph Campbell, um, and I've only picked up on what I know about his stuff based on what I've read from, you know, interviews from various creators, mainly George Lucas. Uh, so I'm not sure if this metaphor that's in there of the hero's journey completely works. Uh, London does want it to be a myth because he wouldn't have had him become the, um, how does he phrase it? Ghost dog of the Northland legend. (laughs) You know, if he didn't want some sort of mythological something or other come out of this, but I don't know. He, he, it's not a conventional hero type of thing. You know, he's not super dog. 
or anything, rushing in to save everybody. He's, he's kind of an instrument of vengeance at the end. Um, and he's still fighting for leadership of a pack, so it's... I guess it depends on, depends on how you define hero. What, what do you think in response to this one? Yeah, I actually... I had to think about this a little bit, and I think to a certain extent I agree with you, but I disagree a lot about with this, uh, the myth. Yeah. First of all, I had to like separate my mind because in class I've been doing... Because I teach Latin. I've been doing a lot with epic. And that's the idea of like people doing... A group of people or an individual doing like these super human deeds Mm -hmm. and so at first I was thinking like but this isn't you know so then I had to separate myself from that so then I was thinking about myth and I I, the part that I agree with you is that absolutely we have this legend at the end and I think that's where sort of that that myth part comes in but I also think about myths either giving background or a basis for like the origin of something like how the sun came into being or like you know i think of anansi or something and then you've got anansi yeah, the spider yeah, yeah, and like yeah. something you, you the, know the, and like was the this world, is why the blah blah yeah, blah the yeah, world that was created happened. from the back of a turtle which is like a Absolute, native american yeah. myth i think yeah like something like that or like yeah. something that's clearly fictional and while I know that this is a work of fiction, uh, the reason why I disagree with it being a myth is that I feel like this stuff could have actually happened mm-hmm. with all of the things that went on. Like, a lot of it, I, I feel like th- there's a lot of realism in there. Um, clearly, you know, Jack Wanda knew what was up with all the stuff that was going on, um, and, and I think he had a, a certain level of authority on the subject. So I guess that's why I, I disagree that it's a myth because yeah. it, it seems so true to life and really it's just that end point where I mean if we think about I guess if it's the origin of this um this dog at the end that, mm. that's like this mythical being who is able to take down humans and, and yeah. is like a ghost and everything, then I guess we can see it. But if I take in everything, because that's only just looking at Buck and his journey. Yeah. But if I look at everything as a whole, I feel like it's not a myth. Like, this could just as soon be a true story. Well, and, and you know, doesn't it feel that that myth aspect at the end, because it really doesn't appear until the end of the book, is kind of tacked on? Yeah. Like... <clears throat> It, it really isn't until he just he kills the the yeehats and then mm-hmm. starts running in the woods and gets the pack and everything and then we get this whole and he returned to the site of the blah 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 and you're like <laughs> I don't think that needed to be there you know like yeah. maybe it was a convention of the time maybe mm-hmm. London was going it was a trope of the time that we're not worried you know because there are definitely tropes of of 19th and 20th century or the 20th century literature that we are not familiar with because they've died out. Maybe that was something convention of the time, but even I was just kind of like, you could have just had him run into the woods, take control of the pack and they would just run free, born free, you know, and, <laughs> and that's how we end. And it would have been mm-hmm. totally fine. Um, what about the hero's journey aspect of it? I mean, is, is that an accurate description? Yeah, so then the question goes, do we consider uh, Buck a hero? Yeah. Um, And I guess (laughs) I feel like he's more like Odysseus than he would be, uh, you know, Aeneas. And I know I don't think you've read the Aeneid yet. So, but read the Aeneid in college. Oh, okay. Freshman year of college. So you're talking 1990. 
Okay. Five. Oh, I just see like Aeneas as more of a sympathetic character than perhaps Odysseus, but mm-hmm. I think Buck, while there are times like you clearly feel bad for him, especially like the beating and he's kidnapped and everything, like there are times that I sort of look at him and I'm like, yikes, you're um I, I don't sort of agree with what you're doing. I mean, I understand he's an animal, but we're going to get to, I think, um, London sort of anthropomorphizing. Yeah. But, like, he, he – I mean, he's vicious, um, you know, attacking. And, I mean, you know, we didn't like that one dog anyway. Spitz, is that his name? <laughs> yeah, well, Spitz, yeah. He's and, like the villain of the story, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but and, and being stubborn and like not want he he needed to be leader, mm-hmm. and he would not like settle for any other place. And then I, I feel like again I'm going back to this moose situation, but playing with the huge bull, like just in like this very like vindictive way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I sort of think about well, you know, I guess he's kind of like Odysseus because Odysseus certainly had a level of hubris that I think Buck is certainly proud, maybe not overly proud for an animal. Um. But, you know, it, it does show his development from being, like, this sort of normal, quote-unquote, dog and his, like, transformation and um, and his different state. Like, it's a very dynamic tale. So it, we could potentially call him heroic. And, you know, he as heroes are, he is not without his failings, just as, you know, other um, heroes are not without theirs. Yeah. Is there – I guess I'll, I'll table the question, the, the statement I had made about – that there's something that maybe London is getting at with the Call of the Wild that's that he's considering spiritual uh, for when we talk about the Call of the Wild and the idea of, um, I might pr- mispronounce this, atavism and, mm-hmm. that, 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 uh, and uh, this evolutionary return, you know, mm-hmm. this, that idea. So we're gonna, we're, I'm going to table that for later. So I guess this is just another question that, that I think really, really, if we're talking about this, I don't think we really need to talk about this as a hero's journey. It's certainly a protagonist, but I think you're right. Like, because mm-hmm. even, I mean, I love Odysseus as a character, but he's inherently flawed. Mm-hmm. And you see that it throughout that, you, throughout the Odyssey, aside from the, the fact that, like, you know, he expected, you know, Penelope's, he's like, you know, Penelope, he waited at home for him, and yet he's out. You know, just the double standards that exist within the Odyssey in terms of the yeah. Uh, but, but then you have his relationship or his non-relationship with his son and stuff like that in there. Mm-hmm. And it, but it, it feeds into his character, and makes his character a more full character than say, uh, Beowulf, who is an epic hero who is really not more than just this posturing. Um, man of you know Norse you know uh, he was Dane but you know like Viking man you know and um, as much as I love Beowulf uh, Beowulf always seemed to be like two dimensional to me and and Odysseus is a little more three dimensional to me and and I think Buck falls a little more along the lines there but I don't know if like you're right I don't think he's a he's a hero Mm -hmm. Um, he's certainly be setting up there he's trying to set him up as a hero but yeah. And it's hard because the standards for a hero in the human world is different for the standards of the hero in a, you know, in a dog's world. Cause I'm sort of thinking about like, is he going out of his way to help other people? Like, is he going out of his way to help other dogs? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't know if he's maybe had some affection for dogs, but he didn't step in to protect that one dog from being demolished by the, 
the herd at the beginning. So yeah. it, it's it's hard. Like standards are clearly different, and it's a hard question to answer because what does a hero look like for a dog? You know. Well. Yeah, and you know, and Timmy doesn't get stuck in a well. <laughs> no, no, he doesn't. You know, if, if I'm, I'm thinking hero dog, I'm thinking Lassie. True. Yeah. Yep. And there's no Lassie. Or like Rin Tin Tan. Yeah, or something like that. Like that. Yeah. Um, but no, you're right. It's it's there's there's no. I mean, I'm sure there's there's heroic actions here, but there's it really is this. And to paint this as a myth, you're right. It it doesn't. Um, it doesn't necessarily work when you were talking about that because it is so true to life. Mm-hmm. It's very realistic. And I think he was going for more. Like I said, I felt the mythological part of it at the end was tacked on. And right. had he just gone for a realism, it actually would have, it, it, it works better as, as a realistic novel, as a, as a piece of realism. But the question I had, just to get back to the question I was asking, like when does Buck's story slash life truly uh, begin and I answered the last question first, so why don't you go ahead and? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, this is. I think someone could like shrug their shoulders and be like, "Well, you know, it is just when the when the story begins." But I feel like he has so many beginnings in this particular novel, mm-hmm. um, and <laughs> because you know he's kidnapped, it's like a slave trade, you know, and, and then he realizes sort of the rule of the club um, and, and what to do with that. And, and he has his first group that he's with. Um, and then, of course, he becomes a leader and you're like, oh, is that it? Um, but for me, I feel like it's really, <laughs> gosh, th- there are two parts of me. One of them is like when he first, when he meets John Thornton, when he's like rescued from him, I feel like that's part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, for the remainder of his life, like, where is it going to be? I feel like it has to be after he um, slaughtered the Yeehots and then joined the Wolf Clan is, like, really when his life begins. Um, and I guess the little – there are just little dots along the way. But that's – I mean, that's where he was pushing towards, and I think that was his goal. And so I think that's, you know – his life, but it's which is kind of weird because it's the end of the novel. But for me, I feel like if that was the end point, then I think that's actually where, or if that's where he wanted to get to, that's actually where his his story begins. Yeah. So is this like <sighs> rebirth? Like he's or like he's broken down and then rebuilt mm. or reclaimed. Or reclaims something about him in a way, you know the idea that you're going from a well kept dog to mm-hmm. with a master to one who has no master and is truly yeah. out on his own, running with the wolves. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and it's I think you're making a really good point, and you know, it, it is. It's like it is. It's like there's all these different parts of things. So his so the story begins. In Oakland, mm-hmm. but by the end you feel like something new has begun. Mm-hmm. So it's it is it's the ending of something, the beginning of something else, and that's what I've that's what I've I've got from here. And I don't know if that constitutes a hero's journey either. You yeah. know, again, I like you know I, I read this this phrase that I was that I picked off of uh, off of a review or, or a note, and I was just like. Yeah, but at the same time, it's just, it's not as cut and dry. Mm-hmm. 
And it's interesting. Like, he really is a dog when you get down to it because you know how if we see, like, a violent dog on the street or something or, mm-hmm. or – uh, or like you could see two different types of Dobermans, for example, like one is really vicious and the other one's like very docile. And you sort of always look to the owner, like how's the owner treating it? How's it training it? And it's very simple. Like in here, you see exactly that because Buck just sort of takes on the qualities of whomever he is with at the time. And uh, then I think he's just at his barest uh, at the very end. And he's really not sort of mimicking any other person because the humans are gone now. Mm-hmm. Now he's just like his his naked and animalistic self, I guess. That's really, that's a really, really good point. And you're talking about the humans that he's around. They're all motivated more or less by this lust for gold. Um, Thornton seems to be the only one who does not have... I mean, he Thornton's successful, and he's up there, and he knows what he's doing. But he he doesn't have he. I want to. I just is he more altruistic than the others? I mean, there's something to be said about the fact that um, he's beaten and starved, and he's treated horribly by people who really are up in Alaska and the Yukon because they heard gold was there and they want to go mining for gold. And um, or they want to go find some gold, and you have examples of these abusive Frenchmen who um, who pit the dogs against one another, and that's when Buck's first learning to these three idiot Americans who yeah. who who sled off across the river, and despite all warning, and then just like fall in, and yeah. I can picture it in my head of this disaster that's happening and they, they get what they deserve. Um, you know, what is it about, you know, we're going to talk a lot about instinct is, is greed a human instinct, Mm. um, that Buck doesn't seem to have, or does Buck have the same instinct? It just expresses itself in the same way. Uh, yeah, I, I think the, the instinct is survival. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this case, it's financial survival, but I think it's it's gotten from need to want, like it's sort of gotten out of control. Because mm-hmm. I think with these people, like they could probably survive on not a lot of money. Um, well, I mean, all of us could potentially survive yeah. with not a lot of money, but it's just that we would like more so that we can live in comfort, you know, like creature comforts, and have and have other things. Um, I think the Americans. Uh, by far were the worst. Um, I'm sort of wondering about the the people at the beginning because I feel like their drive was not necessarily money, though that it was clearly a job. But I felt like they took more pride in the work of delivering mail, like because yeah. it, it seemed like a couple times was mentioned about the importance of getting you know the <clears throat> communication from one place to the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think there's something different there. And then with Thornton, cause I think we have just three different levels and I think that the, the worst was in the middle, but with Thornton, I think, um, I don't know if it's about the adventure. Like, I'm not sure exactly what his motivations are, but I don't think they're greed. And the reason why yeah. is because the whole fight, um, or not the fight, sorry, the whole bet situation that he had number one he did not have the funds to make the bet and he had to borrow so that tells me a lot about his character that like he probably 
he wasn't really I mean he could do a little bit of adventuring and stuff but he wasn't really lucking out and then the other thing is he was offered a great deal of money to sell Buck and yeah. he did not and the one thing like you could say like he clearly he loved Buck but sometimes like greed uh, trumps uh oh greed that's the correct <laughs> use of the word I know greed trumps um, you know, love for something, but so he could have easily sold out, but he doesn't. So I feel like he is more altruistic. I think he has other reasons. Um, the way that you see him through Buck's eyes, I mean, they are like carting out all of this gold, and you do wonder if they're punished for that by the yachts at the end. Um, I'm sure we'll get to that, but I don't. I just don't see him as greedy, mainly because of that that bet that was made. Um, but you know. I, I don't know if it's about greed for for all of them, but I think yeah. it is certainly about the Americans. But I also think um, that London could potentially just be pointing out um, stupidity and inexperience and that, you know, this life is for people who are trained. And so, like, look at what happens if you're like, – this isn't just for Saturday night adventures or Saturday morning. Like, you can't just go out and be like, I'm going to go in the gold rush. Oh, yeah, like, there's you're, no like, weekend warrior. Yeah, here. so I think he could also be making a statement against people that he's probably actually seen that are like, I'm going to go. It, it's not for you. I mean, you're right about Francois and Perrault really are focused on more like on, on who's useful yeah as opposed to getting money but at the same time like it, it, does he like thornton more compared to everybody else because simply because thornton treats him better than anybody else um i mean there's uh, there's people who mistreated him compared to thornton what makes him better? I mean, Francois Perrault, they, it seemed like a lot of the violence toward the dogs with Francois Perrault was the dogs doing it to each other. Mm-hmm. And they weren't, you know, you're right. They, they were, they were, and then the Scottish one was providing a service. So they knew how to keep these dogs going long term. But why are, you know, why is it that Thornton's the one that, that he's, that he seems more attached to in the end? Part of me thinks that Thornton treats him like an equal. Huh. Um, I, I don't think he treats him because the, the Americans, I think, clearly are just like, these are animals, they're basically, you know, enslaved to us, they need to do our bidding, and we're going to beat them, we don't care about them. If we need to, we'll shoot them and leave them on the side of the road. Um, I think the uh, the trio. What'd you say? America. <laughs> yeah, huzzah! Um, I think you know at the beginning. Um, I'm not sure if I could necessarily put my finger. Like I think they respected them a little bit more, but it was also like these are animals. Query, like look at you know, there's something special about him. Like they would always point out about that buck's different. But with John, I just feel like he does. Um, treat him almost as an equal and that's not to say like he's treating him like a human but like it's interesting that the terms of endearment that we hear are like he's probably calling him like an SOB 
and a bastard <laughs> because he says like they're like not if you heard them they're like not kind words i can't remember the exact phrasing but you know what i'm talking about yeah. like he's not saying oh you good good dog so it's just like he's he's treating him like anyone else uh, i think he treats him with respect um i think maybe he makes buck forget to a certain extent his animal ways um and just like makes him feel like he's uh he can do anything. Just, just I don't know. He imbues him, I think, with a different type of strength, more so than just like physicality. I think there's there's a bit of a you know a spiritual and, and mental strength there too. Um, but th- you know that's just how I read it. Just how he uh, treats him. So does Thornton have to die? <laughs> and because he dies oh. in the end, and then Buck goes yeah, back does. and he gets his vengeance. Mm-hmm. And on the Yats and. Um, is like is is that the last of of Buck throwing off the constraints of the humans that have hurt him and you know for so long that humanity cannot be trusted or something like that? I mean, if if Thornton had survived the book and it had ended with I don't know Buck just leaving and Thornton mm-hmm. having an understanding of why Buck left. Would it have been any different? I mean, does it have to end in such a violent way? Yeah, I know. This is a hard question. Because I think on the one hand, he did need to die because I think he is that last connection that Buck has to the human world. Mm -hmm. And I think that no matter where he went, he was going to feel some sort of loyalty to Thornton, Thornton because I think even when he was out there in the wild, like he may have thought about him. But you also see in in that whole... I guess the days leading up to it, that he was going out for longer and longer amounts <laughs> amounts of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it seems like he was already sort of separating himself. And I think at one point maybe there would have been like, uh, you know, I'm not going back with you. Like maybe – I mean I can't imagine why Thornton and his, his partner or partners could have – like they could have just started off and, and Buck stand there and, and, you know, that's that's the way it's got to be. Mm-hmm. But I, if, to a certain extent it just like – the moose. It just. I feel like it. It. It almost like the whole situation, the carnage of like what Buck is doing with the moose is like almost reflecting what the Yeehots were doing with Thornton, which potentially contemporaneously, like those things were happening. Um, like so I don't know what what's other, be, right? yeah yeah I don't know what that's saying about nature, but um I, I, so I feel like the answer is yes. He he did have to die, but I. I think there just needed to be some sort of cut. I wish it didn't have to be violent, and I, I envision a way that it didn't have to, but I guess for it to be a quicker ending and for it to take on that legendary status, like he may not, he wouldn't have been able to be the mythical if London's purpose was to have a myth at the end. It wouldn't have happened if they had parted tearfully and Thornton was still alive. Yeah, that's a good point. Because there there'd be no reason for vengeance. Yeah, and then I was also wondering about, like, you know, is it one of those cases, like, well, he's got to do this for himself, and John Thornton can't give him, like, the permission to go off into the wild, you know. Um, but then again, am I just injecting 21st century politics into, into <laughs> you know, like, because well, there are plenty of stories, and there are plenty of arguments about, like, you know, characters usually of um, a non-white white male uh, persuasion who... You know, you get annoyed because it's because of the white male character that they are able to do what they do. You know that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It's like you know. So, so I think I'm I think I'm projecting in a way I'm not. But what I did notice, and this is I know I am projecting with this a little bit, but 
and it did bother me, was that the Yia, the Yiats, uh, the Indians, it's it comes off as one of those Indian savage moments, those like which is which was very very cliche through the first half of the twentieth century through the late nineteenth century, of portraying Indians as the bad guys, as these savage primitives. Um, who were gonna, you know, just these the savage killers, and you know, they, they and and um, and it, this this came off as yet another one of that because it's not like they appear anywhere else through the book. No. So nope. so now he's in a he, he's taking out a group that is just savage Indians, and then he then he 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 beats them with his own savagery and now mm-hmm. he's now he's a buck of the wild you know and and i feel that that dates this book um i mean more than it is like you know 1903 it is the klondike gold rush there are a lot of reasons to date this book but this particularly does because that is a trope very much of its time and it may have been true. There may have been. I'm, you know, it's. I have not. I have never actually researched the Klondike Gold Rush beyond what I did for this show. For all I know, there were he had attacks throughout the Klondike, throughout the Yukon, throughout Alaska, and this is something that was a normal occurrence. But it does kind of bug me that that it is one of the situations where it's like you know Indians bad and savage. Yeah, and there's not even, like, a reason for them to do it. Yeah, that's the um, thing. I mean, there's no reason. Yeah. I mean, I think they take the gold with them. Am I true in that? Like, they I carry away what think so. Thornton had gotten. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you almost wish, like, I mean, if Thornton were, like, a jerk and he was doing some terrible things and, I don't know, raping and pillaging, then you, like, can totally expect it. But, like, Thornton seems like a decent guy. And they were probably, all they were doing is, like, living off the land, probably, you know, shooting some things they were hunting. And then, like, getting the gold and probably keeping to themselves. So, it basically seems like the Yeehats are big bullies and they just slaughter people for no reason. So, and it's and and <laughs> there's no Wikipedia page for the Yihat Nation. The only thing it pulls up is a disambiguation, or not even a disambiguation. One of those. Did you mean this? And then there's two pages with references to it, both of which are the Call of the Wild. So, do you think they probably would have been Inuit? Yeah, probably would have been Inuit. But again, it's. I mean, this is, this I mean, one... insert any Indian yeah, tribe there. Yeah. That's basically what you're saying. Yeah. Um, but you know, the book does end up with this this very, very vicious, very, very vengeful, very, very violent <laughs> ending, and um, and and it, I, I, I hadn't thought of it up until you mentioned it that the killing of the moose and the killing of of Thornton mm-hmm. had a sort of parallel. You know, where it did kind of run parallel to each other. And and I can picture that, and then it's this sort of um, last step in his own sort of journey before he finally once again gains. Um, and maybe that maybe that that mirrors the fight with Spets mm. that he gains the alpha dog role because he does it at the beginning of his journey as a sled dog that he fights with another dog in the pack and becomes part of the pack and then becomes the leader of the pack. And then later on, it the circle begins anew with him out in the wild and he fights the leader of the pack. You know, he becomes part, he becomes a leader, you know, like just 
that that's maybe that's that rebirth type of thing or the or the 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 thing that starts the next life for him that he has to prove his uh dominance over another or at least mark his territory yeah. as dogs are wont to do um let's talk a little bit about this concept um about uh i believe it's pronounced atavism and uh, i looked I looked up atavism on Wikipedia because mm-hmm. uh, it was a term that I'd heard of and I, just, I had to refresh my memory. In biology, and this is, these are both taken from the Wikipedia page and I, and, and I wanted, to, um, and I wanted to, to, to read them both. In biology, atavism is the evolutionary throwback, such as traits reappearing that had disappeared generations before. Um, in the early 1900s, this idea was kind of weaved into the social side of, of, of the evolutionary discussion, specifically in the um, in the area that was come to be known as social Darwinism. Mm-hmm. Um, it was often used as a reason for reappearance of a trait after several generations of observance. And the social Darwinism is the notion of atavism was used, basically the way it was used was by social Darwinists who claimed that inferior races displayed atavistic traits and represented more primitive traits than their own race. So... You know, take that. It's, I mean, it's incredibly racist sentiment, but social Darwinists never really were altruistic in their intent with their philosophy. And the question being asked is, you know, what exactly is the call of the wild, which is a yeah. bad question, but yeah. how is this atavism used in the development as Buck as a wild animal? Is it successful? And then just a couple of questions about, like, you know, we talk this about human nature when put into certain situations is this as much about human nature as it is about primordial nature and is there something to be said about survival of the fittest or how must we adapt our own behavior in order to uh survive and i think if you put buck's character development into context this context of the social darwinism the atavism you see it at work on some level. You know, the idea that during this time, during the early 1900s, atavism was used as a reason for the reappearance of a trait because they didn't have modern-day genetics figured out the way they do now. So if you're dealing with this idea of a philosophy being in the forefront of society or parts of society to explain certain things, and you're a writer, maybe you are picking up on this either consciously or subconsciously. Um... And I always find it interesting about how we frame evolution of other, and other aspects of evolution in such violent terms. Can you explain? I just, it, there's this, like, no. <laughs> okay. Um, I just, well, violent, I just wanted just, to explain. It's the survival violent. of the fittest, this adaptation okay. is change or die. Okay. And okay. the thing that it's I was not just live. <laughs> no, no, it's and yeah. or or that that we have like extinctions and, and things where we have either species dying out or killing each other off and and I think of of I think of evolution. I think of what we talk about when we talk about you know when we try to put it into like a societal context 
And what we are doing is basically creating like, um, it's like this, like we're trying to create like a micro hustle. So like we look at society, what we often see, um, you know, like, uh, we can get into the, adapt the idea of adaptation in a minute, but like a lot of times we see what we see on a societal level is this microcosm of when you're talking about biological evolution, you're talking like millions of years and so gradually you cannot often see it in front of your face, especially as a species as huge and varied as humans, humanity. Mm -hmm. And, um, the idea that Buck could be tapping into something that would have that throwback thing when that was an accepted philosophy at the time makes total sense. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, there are lots of questions that you're asking, so I'll try to take them a little bit at a time. So first of all, I guess we'll start with um, the atavism anyways. Oh, mm -hmm. I'll start with that, I think. Yeah, go ahead. I... And uh, so this actually comes from a Latin, uh, which is a Taoist, which is like a great, great grandpappy or more or basically, you know, an ancestor. Mm. And we see this throughout because there are moments where he'll like reference like the dogs from the cave, you know, the caves or whatever, like obviously primordial, you know, like the oh, dog yeah. he, at the very beginning. Subtle. No, he is not. So he, he talks about that. A lot. Uh, and, and so I think that is certainly, um, you know, sort of going his evolutionary uh, throwback. Um, I feel like the well, really, it all begins at the beginning and like each layer that I talked about, there are different points of his story. Like it peels back a little bit more. So it's almost like in progressing forward in the story, we're actually going backwards in time. I was trying to figure out if there's one word for that. Regressing? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. See, that's why you teach the English. <laughs> um, Unagi. I know. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> oh, no. Uh, so, I, I think part of me, so then this goes to what the call of the wild is. And to a certain extent, I see a connection between both of Mice and Men and the Little Prince. <laughs> Because I almost feel like the call of the wild is what Lenny and George are looking for. is to, like, you know, live off the land and be, you know, just as natural as possible and just, you know, be with whomever. In, in George and Lenny's case, it's, like, to be together, um, you know, in a non-homoerotic manner. Uh, but And also living off the land. Yeah. Did you have no, no. And I was, well, I was going to, I was going to. I was kind of back you up on that and say that yeah. that part of the the social aspect of atavism is that there's this reclamation of things that maybe not biologically you evolve from that you evolve from socially. Mm -hmm. So the idea that you're going back to a more simple way of life or right. you're reclaiming aspects of a simpler time or a simpler way of life mm -hmm. um, definitely would work in here. And I think you're right about George and Lenny. They are looking for that more simpler time, mm -hmm. more simpler, yeah. more simple time. Yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, connection to the little prince is I think about the fox and the little prince and this idea of taming. And then, of course, the prince as well and the rose and everything. And I think in going backwards and, and answering the call of the wild, Buck is 
pushing against being tamed because I think at the beginning he is tamed. I think again we start to peel back and he gets less and less tame, but he still has like a collar on, you know, however mm. metaphorical that may be. And I mean, he's hooked up to some, so there's like restraints, but near the end, like he has no restraints. He's like able to do it. He's away from humans. Um, so he just goes into a more simplistic lifestyle um he's more one with nature i think like he takes notice at the very like however brutal it is with the moose um it's also very beautiful how london describes like the nature and like the sounds that um that buck is hearing something bizarre i don't that i found that the two times that there is like this weird vision that he was seeing in the in the fire Mm -hmm. which goes back to like the ancestral humans which i thought was strange like Mm -hmm. i wondered why buck didn't see well because that's kind of how it seemed i mean it was like a native person but um i mean he wasn't there but i was wondering like why did a buck see like sort of the first dog or something kind of wondered about that um but as i was reading this i thought a little bit about the walking dead or like any post-apocalyptic novel really um is it you know the walking dead for me is more is less about the zombies and more about people but just like the idea of how like you could look at a character at the beginning like before the apocalypse happens and then after the apocalypse happens like you basically have to evolve or die uh and that's you know survival of the fittest really is like you really have to adapt to your situations and like laws and moral codes are probably not the same and the things you have to do so i i saw a lot of that uh here just because buck at the beginning was a trained dog uh too trusting because clearly he was you know he trusted that one guy who was yeah. the one who who sold him and everything and then he had to learn you know first about the club like you need to fear that uh then he had to learn about like how to because the first uh time he was in the camp he was freezing he couldn't be in the tent with the humans so he's like well where do i gotta go so then he learns how to you know dig so it's all these like little incremental things Um, finally he gets to the top and then there's really nowhere else to go except for like backwards and away from humans and everything so i feel like there is you know certainly survival of the fittest or in this situation and i think uh the situations determine what fit actually means because i think in this case it probably um, well, you have to be able to survive long hauls with a little bit of food um, and uh, vicious other dogs. Uh, but, yeah, so for me, The Call of the Wild is really just, um, I think, honestly, getting back to your roots, um, living off the land and, like, having no attachments, really. Well, I guess he does have an attachment, so that's a lie because now he, he has his own little pack there. But... Uh, it's just disconnecting, I think, from the human world and getting back to the origins and just being one with nature. That's sort of how what I envision the call of the wild being. And it's interesting we talk about a regression to something that was, was sort of an ancient instinct that, that he had. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he is evolving That because he wouldn't have been able – had he not learned all those things, he would not have been able to survive – and, you know, adaptation is really the cornerstone of evolutionary theory. And, and it goes back all the way, does go all the way back to Darwin. Um, because, you know, his observations in the Galapagos with the turtles really were showing adaptations and its effect in nature in a sense in real time. Like, it was very, very observable. And that's why he was able to make those conclusions. And, and I'm simplifying for the sake of this, you know, our discussion. But 
like I said, we have this microcosm on a societal level, and, and you know what you have through millions and millions of years of evolution is genetic mutation, mutation, and species and subspecies dying out, and in some cases, you know, in some cases there are violent ends to one another, and you know, cosmic disasters and stuff like that. But with with this, it's it's these um, animal instincts that that I, London, you're right, London implied that they were they were they were essentially bred out of him. And that he's reclaiming it. You're right in a way, and um, and it is that that getting back to nature, which is interesting. Um, we talk about like the human aspect of it with Lenny and George, and or or now you see it in this sort of movement to do things that re- that reflect the simpler life, um, or have a more have a have a foot in in another time i'm trying to phrase this correctly so that you can understand where i'm coming from but like i see like the local food movement and i see people who get into things like canning and i know i'm talking about food but um the idea that you are you're making your own things like you know that that the, there's certain movements in our culture nowadays that are throwbacks to older times although the irony of some of them are that you need to be able to have money in order to partake in them which is not what the people who originally did them were but that's that's the irony of our culture you're where you pay a premium to go to to go to a restaurant and have what and have like upscale peasant food but you know that's my just snarky cynical commentary and i don't even know where i'm going with this um so i might cut this part out uh but yes well i mean you're basically is it like you, it's going back to the regression, like going back to yeah, simpler yeah, yeah. times. Yeah, yeah. I understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I, but I'm just making. I'm also taking pot shots at hipsters. But um, okay. Well, just that. Let me put my single gear bike away and seem offended. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I have a mountain bike. Tom, please. It's twenty something years old. I've had it since high school. <laughs> uh, no, but it's, it's the idea that it's, it's. I just always find it ironic that, like, you know, you see. Um, you see stuff about like organic farming and you see stuff about like, you know, make your own this and cook your own stuff. And like, you know, it's, oh, it's just the simplicity in life that seems to cost more money <laughs> than like the stuff that you're supposed to be avoiding. And I, I agree with you there because, I mean, if you go to like if you want to eat healthier and yeah. organic, like that stuff is like so expensive. Compared yeah. to every, and that's what gets people into trouble health wise. Like, we could get on a whole thing with like food ink and everything. Oh, yeah. Is that like the cheaper stuff is bad for you and like the things that they're doing with food and everything? Yeah. But with Buck, it's, it does go back to the, the idea that, that he does learn that he has to adapt to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the thing is, and this is something that I think, I don't think either of us have gotten wrong over the course of this conversation, but so many people do get wrong is they equate survival of the fittest with only strong survive. And they equate only strong survive with physical strength. Mm. And the thing is, 
it is so much more mental. Mm-hmm. And with Buck, it is as much mental as it is physical. Absolutely, because one of his main characteristics is being cunning. Yes. And like tricking people, like stealing things and yeah. getting it blamed on other dogs. Yeah. Yeah. He's <laughs> yeah. Not stupid. No. And and that's and that's important to note, and that's one of the things that that species over time have been able to adapt to. There have been species of mammals that have outlived the dinosaurs. Why? They were smart enough to know where to hide when the asteroid hit. You know, like things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, or you know, and um, and. So we can talk now. I think we can. We this would lead pretty well into a discussion of London anthropomorphize. And I damn it, I knew I was going to mispronounce that. Anthropomorphizing mm-hmm. Buck. And the question is, could you swap the dogs out for humans? And uh, to what extent is he emphatically an animal? Um. I don't think on a literal level you could. I think that um, the fact that this is a dog and we are seeing things from the point of view of a dog is the hook for the book, for the novel. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's something that makes the novel, you know, because it's, you know, there are other, there, there's books about dogs. There's Old Yeller and, and stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, okay, we got a dog, but, you know, and there's, books about horses and stuff, but here's the book that's from the point of view of the dog. And that's, a, it's a, it's a way to hook his audience in. So I don't think he could do that. Um, plus and it's humans. And I, I just, I wonder if it, if it becomes humans, if the story is less about a look at what about us as primal and more about the, some revelation about what drives us, you know, and then we bring in the whole idea of greed and, that which is its own novel entirely you know um does does you know if is buck if buck's a man does you know is he gonna run wild through the um does he run wild through the woods of the yukon in bear skins like you know captain caveman or does he become one with the Indians and we go down a terribly racist path <laughs> of joining the savages or does it become dances with wolves? You know, I mean, yeah. you know, I, so in my mind, this book doesn't work. You could do the themes with men. But the Call of the Wild, as Jack London has written, it has to have the point of view of the dog. Yeah, I agree with you there. I think, and this was my question, the reason why I asked is because all of these, like, these characteristics and the feelings and everything was clearly, like, you know, personification all the way, you know, all the way oh, throughout. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I did, you know, to a certain extent, like, see, like, um, see, wow, that was terrible. See Buck, I, I, I try not to say the L word, see Buck versus, you know, Spitz and all these other people as if they were, you know, a couple men that were trying to vie for um, being leader 
of whatever, a gang or, or mm-hmm. something like that. So there are just certain moments and, and their feelings and the cunning again, which is almost like, you know, a humanist, very humanistic quality. Th- that's why I, I thought about that. But yeah, you can't, you know, you're not going to put a man in, in, uh, in a harness and and say mush mush you know th- those things certainly don't work and and how is he yeah going to relate to nature um so i think you're you're right about the literal sense but i think there are moments that i mean he's clearly taking on characteristics of a human being because yeah, it's not like you can't have a book where a man goes back to commune with nature uh-huh. i mean we have walden right but even then Aside from the fact that Thoreau needed to catalog how many peas he bought, because seriously, Henry, <laughs> it is. Oh my gosh! It is. It is the most famous passage from Walden. Is probably the one where he basically what he says more or less, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing that he went to the woods to live deliberately. Mm-hmm. Yet it's this meditation on civilization. And the book is less about the book is as much about nature as it is about civilization, and it's about civilization as much as it's about nature. And then I brought up Dances with Wolves because like it just made me think of like you know if if this is John Thornton instead of Buck, and he doesn't get killed by the by the Indians at the end, but he joins them because that's the call of the wild. Then we're reading this from a more modern context, and we're just like, wow, really? Like the untamed savages, like you know. Again, that that doesn't that doesn't sit well with my twenty first century sensibilities. Um, so even on a metaphoric level, it changes if you change the uh, the identity of the protagonist. Is the book too violent? <laughs> In my mind, it is. Um, it, <laughs> I guess, given the situation, you know. How else could it be presented? Mm-hmm. Um, so some of it is like nature violence. So mm-hmm. I guess one should just be okay with it. But, you know, it's hard to also see like a dog get put down. You know, mm-hmm. Billy was a kindly dog. Yeah. And then Thornton and everything. And then one Buck decides to rip out the throats of – well, that was basically Buck's like main um, – Sega Genesis move is uh, ripping out throats. That's like his claim to fame right there. Finish him. No fatality. Um, is it too violent? Um, because I I think it's been criticized um mm-hmm. for for its violence. Um, and I, I wonder, like, depending on who the audience is, like, yeah. it might not be an appropriate level of violence. I think for us, I guess it was, though I still was bothered by it, because it's not, like, overly violent. It just, it is violent, though. It, see, I... I it's not gratuitous, I guess I should well, say. Well, yeah, it, but I kept waffling back and forth to whether or not some of the violence was gratuitous. Oh, okay. Because I was just like, you know, does it always, like, even with the slaughter of the Indian tribe at the end, I'm like, wow, yeah. that's really graphic. Yeah. And... But some of the, like some of the more violent fates that meet some of these people, like like the Americans on the river, like that totally makes sense in my mind. <laughs> and and but at the same time, like you've got this beating this dogs and and the the way he's caged at the beginning and things. It's like you know, is he going too deep with the description just to shock us to keep us reading? You know, mm-hmm. um, 
and then I do then 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 this is really one of the last questions I have um before we get to kind of our grand question of, of that we do every episode is like you know who is the audience for this book you know I, I was thinking about this um this is going to come off as completely sexist but um you and I are far enough apart in age that the concept of young adult literature is much different or was much different when we were of the young adult literature demographic mm -hmm. age. You're, um, you are really of, and this is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong because I'm, this is going to come off as me being like, you know, like Mr. Mansplainer here, but you're of that really that first generation that had the tween label um or where they or that was or where marketers were inventing the idea of a tween and my generation or my, the people my age when i was 12 13 14 we were the tail end of that generation x where they were still the 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 idea of i think the idea of that tween demo existed but it wasn't fully formed yet so with ya lit you had very little. You had um, the Babysitter's Club. You had Sweet Valley High. You had the works of people like Judy Bloom, And then there were some scattered novels here and there. Um, the Outsiders, uh, The Chocolate War, like things like that. Harry Potter wasn't, wasn't there yet. Um, and then if you go even younger, books for boys were like uh, Tom Sawyer, The Hardy Boys, and stuff like this, you know? Adventure books um, about the wild and, and, and pirates and things like that. And, you know, I latched on to Star Trek novels and Star Wars novels, and I completely skipped over the whole idea of young adult literature as it existed in the early 1990s because I started reading Stephen King when I was in the eighth grade. But, you know, your people your age had a lot more um, marketed toward them because by then, why it was becoming more of a cash cash cow for publishing industries. Mm-hmm. So between Harry Potter and then some of the other books that were coming out and then that that insipid ruiner of Twilight? vampire. Yeah. Um, Gosh, you were beating around the bush with that one. I hate those stupid books. <laughs> oh, man. No. Um, but you know what I mean? Like this was clearly like the book for boys or a book mm -hmm. for boys back when I was a kid. And I don't know if I, you know, it, like I was thinking about whether or not there's an audience for this. And I think that over time, now that there's been so much more published for all groups and there's such blurring and really disregard for any gender or race lines, you know, that, that you know it's you know the idea of you know if i'm a if i'm a boy and i want to read a graphic novel like Raina Tellemeyer or i'm a girl i want to read just some anime stuff that's you know 
that's like mecha or something. Uh, no, anime, manga. God, the nerds are going to kill me on that one. If I want to read manga that's like, you know, not smooshy high school things, it's monsters and mecha and stuff, I can do that and it's no big deal. Um, you know, back when I was younger, people did that, but at the same time, it was still very, very segmented, very segregated. Um, and back then, you know, this was, this was what, this would have been the, the boy book. I don't think I would recommend this to most boys. However, at the same time, there's geographical areas in this country and cultures surrounding things like hunting and that I think would get a kick out of this, you know, mm-hmm. that, you know, you, if you're one of the mountain folk, you might like this book because it's dogs and hunting and sledding and ripping each other apart. And, you know, like it might be right up your alley. So, I mean, maybe the, maybe the audience has shifted from like, you know, boys and, and young men to just kind of a, a ge- particular geographical, cultural, socioeconomical group, which was a long winded answer. Yeah, I um. So in seventh grade, I read where the red fern grows. Oh yeah, is that the one with the? Is, the, is that the one with the, the dog who's coming dogs. back? Yeah, I remember that. We saw a movie version of that. That dog never seemed to die. Yeah, you're you're a kindly man. Is all I have to say. You know, people people don't understand how kind you. Are. I just remember um, that like the dog kept yeah. getting into trouble and the dog kept coming back. It's like well, that as it should be. Die. Um, but anyways, I I feel like well, I mean that was seventh grade, so that was a long time ago. But you know, it's the violence level, I guess, that um maybe I sort of questioned. So apparently, uh, a couple years ago or several or you know. When I was still teaching, I've only been teaching for seven years now. Um, they taught this in the eighth grade, and also it must have been in the seventh grade because my colleague lent me the cop current copy that I'm reading. Um, both of them did not like it for different reasons. My seventh grade colleague, because of what happened to the dogs, and my eighth grade because of the prose. I guess she's not a fan of Jack London. Mm. Uh, and so I guess I think about my eighth graders now and whether they would would get that. I mean, I feel like. To a certain extent, it's not adult enough for them, and to another extent, it's too adult for them. Um, I just think that they'd be like, "Why are we reading a book about dogs?" But that's just what we're teaching. I, you know, that's just our demographic. Yeah, now, yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite honestly, um, but I, I don't know if I would either. I feel like I would love to do. I just think a lot of these themes might be above them. Um, it might be good if it were paired with, you know, again, another book that's paired with like history so that there's a better understanding of, of what's going on. But I think maybe there are other books that have dogs in the lead role, um, that might be better suited than, uh, this one. So I don't, I don't know if I would either, but that's probably cause I'd be, it would be hard for me to teach it. I mean, maybe on some level to understand some of the more, uh, the finer as- some of the aspects of evolutionary or generic gen- that sort of genetic instinct mm-hmm. um animal instinct you could pair this like, with this into a psychology um context i kind of agree with you on london's prose it's not i mean again it's this is a, it's it's not a boring book but it's 
you know, um, it was engaging enough for me to read the whole thing through. I, it, it is one of those books that I think I would recommend on a specific basis. To me, this is not a whole class novel anymore. I think, and I think that's just because of, a, because of it's being a product of its time. And I think of the way that times have changed over the course of the last 25 years since I first stepped foot in a, um, no longer than 25 years, but 25 to 30 years since I first stepped foot in a junior high school English classroom, where they were still reading some books like this and Johnny from Maine and, and The Adventure of Tom Sawyer and things like that were much, much older. And um, now it's not that you don't have, it's not that you wouldn't have to teach anything really old in, in a junior high or middle school or high school classroom. But we are moving away from the idea that that you know good literature stopped in 1954 or something you know like or 55 you know like like there was the catcher of the rye and nothing came after that or something like that because I, I just I think that you could replace this with something else mm-hmm. and still have the same um, discussion you could you could replace this with the dystopian science fiction piece yeah. And I do agree with you that I think it's catered more towards boys than mm-hmm. girls. Yeah. Like, I think, I mean, well, Mercedes was a terrible character, frankly. Yeah. Um, all she would do is, like, cry over everything. I'm like, who is this? Um, so I, I just, it'd be hard for, like, the girls to sort of relate relate to what was going on. But I think mm-hmm. the boys would at least find, um, they would find the adventure aspect fun. Yeah, yeah. But even then, there are better adventure books out there. So True. it's... Yeah, I think we're both on the idea that it's not one that we would go out of our way to teach. I don't think it's one that needs to be banned from the classroom. But like you know, no, yeah. and I don't mean like in a censorship or way, but like you know, you don't. I wouldn't chuck this one completely, but it's not something that I would I would actively seek out and, and teach. Um, all right, any last thoughts before we move on to feedback and, and close things up? I'm still trying to find some way to forgive you. (laughs) Hello? Are you still there? Yes, I am. Okay, so we have... um... (laughs) So before we move on to to our next book, um, we have an iTunes review and we have a uh, an email. Uh, the iTunes review comes from Rob Kelly. Rob is one of the two people that make up the main part of the Fire and Water podcast network. The other being Shag. And um, oh my goodness, <laughs> no, Rob and Shag. Uh, if you ever want to <laughs> listen to any of their shows over at the Fire and Water podcast, it's, I believe it's firewaterpodcastnetwork.com or firewaterpodcast.com. Just search for Fire and Water Podcast Network. They have a number of shows about comics. Um, pop culture music movies and such uh and and they they do they do a great job and um and 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 really put some entertaining stuff together so rob gave us a five star itunes review and it's from december 24th 2016 so this was a christmas present to the two of us uh tom it says this top this podcast makes reading fun Tom and Stella, two podcasters whose work I have enjoyed in the past, 
bring a palpable sense of fun to this show, all about the great works of literature. Kudos to them to, for doing a podcast on what is generally thought as a decidedly non-oral medium. Even though I have only read one of the books covered so far, the, the hosts bring a real high level of engagement to the show, which kept me interested. Looking forward to more episodes and bring on The Outsiders. And, mm. uh, the Outsiders is on my short list, so... I've never read it. We'll be getting we'll be getting to that uh, this year sometime. So just keep sure. listening. Keep listening. Uh, you have the email. I do have an email uh, from a good friend of mine who used to um, help out at Backworld Oracle uh, from Kimberly Rockmore. She says, "Dear Stalin Tom," which is of course the proper order that it should be. I have been enjoying your show thus far, and the works you have covered have already set you apart from other literature-based shows. I was wondering if you have any favorite female characters in literature. What characteristics should a quote-unquote strong female character have? As an aside, I've been watching My So-Called Life, which I know is a personal favorite of Tom's. Would you consider Angela Chase a quote-unquote strong female character? Thanks for your time and keep up the great work, Kimberly. Hmm. Do you want me to? Can I tackle the second part? Of the, <laughs> What's wrong? Try, uh, the, the so-called life? Yeah. Can I? Um, yeah, please do, because yeah. I'd like to attack you. Oh, jeez. Um, I don't think she's a strong female character, so as oh, much as she is a. She's, all right, she's a flawed female character. I think she is a strong character in that she is a very realistic portrayal of a teenage girl. I wouldn't consider her, like, I consider her a strong character in that she's a very well-written character. And that the portrayal is very strong, but she's not a strong character. So when I think of a strong female character, I think of somebody who is... Um, who is a uh, who's can be a positive character for for an audience of of women or men? Um, who is a a protagonist who is able to accomplish things, overcome problems, or whatever the conflict is, with without having to rely too much on um other people especially other especially like men um even though you know they there can be supported but they, they would be supporting cast members it's not like she accomplishes something because you know a man allows it or something like that um angela i don't that's i but i don't think i don't know if that's angela's story arc and i think that she's a strong character in that she uh she's very very human but i don't know if she's like you know she's not like cut from the Wonder Woman mold of, of, of strong female role models or anything like that. All right, hit me. Do you have any, Oh, you want me to address this first? Yeah, yeah, because I, I have to think for a minute about... I'm, try, I'm, I'm running through books in my head, and I'm trying to think about Yeah, it. I agree with your definition of strong female character. I, I think it certainly is... Um, I think just like with any character, I think it's someone who has respectability and can potential you know depend on themselves and i think the female aspect comes into play with like um being able to overcome her sex 
in a certain, you know, because I think mm-hmm. we're always, you know, character female characters are already like, oh, look, it's a female character. But being, you know, apart from men, men could be in her life, but I think she can do without them. Uh, and because, and, and I'll have my, my two favorite, well, I guess I'll tell them right now, and then You're I'll go Angela Chase. Uh, so my two favorite female characters in literature, and I'm sure there are other ones, are um, Jane Eyre and Scarlett O'Hara. Uh, Jane Eyre. <laughs> I love her sass, first of all, um, and how fiercely uh, she loves Helen Burns. Un- unfortunately, Helen dies. Um, and she does, you know, fall in love with Mr. Rochester, of course, but her strength of character really shows after the failed wedding. And he is, like, willing to still be with her, but she, like, sticks to her um her strong ethics and, and her character and she runs away because she's like, no, this is not for me. And then, of course, she gets some other like proposal and she's like, no, she's not just going to do things because it seems like right at the time or someone else is telling her to do it, uh, mo- mostly men. So that's why I really like Jane. Uh, and Scarlett O'Hara, um, another sassy lady. And while she has had uh, one, two, three, three husbands, I think I'm counting correctly. I hope I'm not missing out on anyone. Charles, Frank, and then Rhett. Yeah, I think I'm good. Um, while she did have three husbands, I think she could have done without them. Um, you know, Rhett was really, I think, the, the one that she loves most of all. But just like being able to survive the things that she did, resurrecting Tara, um, and she's got her flaws, <laughs> however much I love her. But I just think, like, my goodness, no one could have survived that as as well as she could have. And I think a lot of people would have died in that same situation. Then we get to Angel Chase. And uh, you are absolutely right, Kimberly, that Tom loves him some so-called life. And he loves it so much, in fact, that he lent it to me because he basically said, you cannot go on living until you've seen this show. And so, <laughs> so I watched it. And as usual, I gave commentary via text as I was watching. And as I continued on in this show, Angela just started to disgust me more and more. And no, I would not consider her a strong female character. She reminds me of Bella Swan. So even though Tom despises... Yes! Yes! Even though she he despises Twilight, he has actually given me a Twilight-esque show to watch oh. it's because she oh she's always staring at jordan she like have you looked at the way, have you clearly, seen what he leans <laughs> he leans she, great when she should clearly stay away from him she goes over and he like gives a disgusted well he like rolls his eyes and like turns away but she still walks over has the most inane conversations ever She's weeping a lot. Um, I just feel, oh, my goodness. And then she's, like, over him. And then she's not over. Like, I was applauding him. Like, thank heaven. She's finally over. She has a little dance scene. And then she's not, actually. And she treats people poorly, and she's selfish. Well, Scarlett O'Hara is selfish, too, so I guess I can't fault her. But it's just her reliance on Jordan Catalano. And however dreamy Jared Leto may be, she should not be that way. I will agree, though, with Tom that I think compared to other teenage soap operas that have come and gone. And, you know, he will reference probably Melrose Place and 90210, and I'll reference, you know, Dawson's Creek and um, One Tree Hill and things like that. 
uh, pretty little liars. Um, this is realistic, I would say. Uh, it's more true to life, I think, with like the drama and stuff that goes on. But it's still frustrating. I would, I wish, you know, if only this show would resurrect with, you know, thirty-year-old Claire Danes. Um, and uh, if if Jared took time off from Thirty Seconds to Mars, but I, I wonder like how it would have developed her character because apparently in the next season, the father was going to have an affair yeah. and Patty was going to like break down and um. Angela is going to become like the adult of the family. And I'm almost wondering like if season two would have actually been like a better character arc for her and she would have been a stronger person, Mm -hmm. but I don't know, but it was just annoying. Like, especially the episode where she kept going down to the boiler room. (laughs) Oh, and even after everything and like, Oh my goodness. So I just have a problem with that character, but Tom tried to interject before I yelled at him. So do you have something to quabble about? Quibble quabble. I can't believe <laughs> Stephanie Meyer yeah. cannot write a sentence. Oh, I, I think so. She's got and a you, subject verb. And you... Huh? Stephanie Meyer yeah, cannot I'm write a sentence well. <laughs> okay. And you uh-huh. bring this down. <laughs> this is your revenge for, for me at making you read about dead moose only one part of it and i will i will say this uh-huh because one if you really oh. want to hear my full thoughts on my oh here we life, go and the here thoughts of several right. other people who are very big fans of the show there are two episodes of my other podcasts, Pop Culture Affidavit, that you can check out from back in 2014. Um, and they were excellent, and I really enjoyed doing. What episode number? 33 and 34 of Pop Culture Affidavit. You can see, you can get on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Two. And this is directed to you. And I, 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 I could have <laughs> sworn I said this in, in the course of our texting back and forth over the course of the 19 episodes that you watched the show. There are times where Angela becomes incredibly irritating to the point where you're yeah. just like really not paying attention to her. But it's the strength of the other characters in the show that really, really make the show what it is. Mm-hmm. For all of Angela's crap, you have like Ricky's story arc. Oh, absolutely. And you have Rayanne, and you have her parents, and you have Danielle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Danielle, Danielle and Brian Danielle, for the whose win. entire life is being ushered out oh. of rooms. <laughs> um, uh, but the, the Danielle Bryan thing was actually really cute. But you have, like, unlike, say, a 90210 where it was just hung up on, like, three characters, you know, or something like that. Or it, it just, it, it, it worked an ensemble cast incredibly well. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that's where its major strength was. Um, and I, but I, I mean, Angela, it just, it's, she's so, but she's so the 15 year old girl from the nineties. I just, I knew so many girls, I knew girls like her. It's just, it's, and, and it was a show that I watched when I was in high school coming off a few years of watching 80s era Degrassi High, so yeah, I've really. I've always been a fan of very realistic, realistically portrayed teen television dramas. So, as for my female characters, yes, 
I I blanked. I'm trying to Tom. think. I'm completely blank. I'm going through all of these these strong female characters. I love I love Viola from Twelfth Night. Oh yeah. I I just I, because of because Twelfth Night Twelfth Night is just this comedy of errors and, and craziness and stuff. But I love how I just love the. The way she matches wits with the with with Festy and, and the and 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 on some other level, um, some of Shakespeare's other female leads protagonists, especially in the comedies, you know the the idea of this girl with a rape, with a rapier tongue, um, Antigone. Even though it's been a very long <gasps> time since I've read that play, yeah, the, the girl the, the girl stands up. She who's willing to die what she for what she believes mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and on some level. Uh, two characters that sprung to mind. One was, please correct me if I get the name wrong, Esther in the Bell Jar. Was her name Esther? Oh. Am I right on the name? Because I just want to say it was Sylvia Plath. I but, will. And she's Basically. she's yeah. not necessarily a strong female character. Yeah. But I've always enjoyed that book for its exploration of somebody's mental illness. Mm-hmm. And that was a woman writing it, I think, just it gives a perspective that, like I said, I've always said that's almost like a counterbalance, like the, the mental illness the breakdown that's being described in The Catcher in the Rye. And, yeah. and, and I, that's what I've always loved about it. And then, honestly, I really like Scout Finch from oh, To Kill yeah. a Mockingbird. Both her as a kid, but her as the narrator. Because the narrator, Scout Finch, is an older woman. And she's looking back on something that happened to her when she was, when she was a girl. And um, and and I like I like how that that plays out um, with her and, and her friends and you know. But then again, I've always loved that novel. So. Mhm. Yeah. All right. Um, and that'll do. That'll do for emails. That'll do it for uh, the show. But we have one more piece of business to attend to. Something that I don't know, and Stella does. It's true. What is next month's book? So one of my feelings as a human being, one of my flaws, if you will, is that I hold grudges. And um, so Tom will basically rue the day uh, that he has uh, put me through what he put me through with this uh, this uh, particular novel. And uh, re- listeners, readers... Until he turns around his uh, his his choices of novels, mm. I'm gonna uh, plague him with the ones that I'm gonna choose. <laughs> I feel so bad for you, but not really. Uh, so my first uh, vengeance novel, I guess I'll call it. Jeez. I know. Was published in 1938. And it is a, a gothic mystery a thriller romance, and it is known as Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. Is it the Hitchcock movie? <laughs> no. Is it a Hitchcock oh. movie? Oh yeah, 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 maybe. I'm pretty sure it's a Hitchcock movie. All I right, have Rebecca. a personal connection with with this one, so well, is, like a personal it, history with. Is Becky. it Becky with the good hair? I'm not there You better call Becky with the good hair 
You better call Becky with the good hair. I don't know who you are anymore. Oh, come on. Are you embarrassing yourself? All right. So we're going to read. We're going to read. Rebecca. Rebecca. How do you feel right now? What are your feelings? They catch you off guard? Gothic. Uh, you did catch me off guard because I, I honestly had no. That yeah. was not. That was not um, on my. I know. Radar. Are you upset? Uh, no, because I honestly, oh. outside of outside of knowing that it's a film, I don't know too much about it. You said gothic uh, romance or just gothic story? Oh, so. gothic romance, you know, mystery, thriller, all okay. these things wrapped up but in one. But it's but it's twentieth century, so it's not going to be like nineteenth century gothic stuff which can be a little bit overwrought and okay weathering in its heights but um oh gosh i don't know if we'll ever do that one uh no no all right let's do it let's do it thanks heather <laughs> so until then we'll be reading we'll be we'll be gathering our notes together and uh don't forget to to get back to us and tell us whether or not you like the book whether or not you want to discuss certain points whether or not you want to slag off stella for her uh her mischaracterization of Angela Chase. Yeah, give a break. Uh, anyway. Thank you. Save a moose and keep on reading. Goodbye. <laughs> it always sounds like you're getting a tooth pulled when you record with me. They are afraid. For it has more strength than any wolf, more cunning than any dog. No one knows from whence he came or why he stays. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true That's two true things. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash requiredreading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode.